Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For them are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Thank you very much. Uh, good to see you this morning. Do keep that passage open in front of you. That's what we're going to be looking at together. Let me pray for us as we get stuck into this. Father God, thank you so much for the Bible, the word of truth. So we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to grow in our knowledge this morning, that you would deepen our faith and that our lives might be changed by what we hear today. Please do this for us because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The country is in a mess. You cannot trust anybody. Nobody cares about anybody else or who they hurt just as long as they are okay. It's a violent place, a scary place, one of anger and division. The young are out of control. The old are not much better. 
Families imploding. No respect for authority. The average person on the streets is a liar, a nasty piece of work, a lazy, greedy slob. Welcome to first century Crete. That's the picture we're given. If you have a look, Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's what people are saying. And the Apostle Paul says, true story. Now, some of those things might also be true of our culture as well. Human nature hasn't changed very much in the last 2,000 years. So what hope is there for changing people? If that's what people are like, how do we do anything about that? How do you make bad people better? Better education? Tougher policing? National service? That'll straighten them out, won't it? Better parenting? Maybe going to church. What can make bad people good? Well, this letter of Titus has the answer. That might seem a bit of a big claim to make, but this short note from the Apostle Paul to his young friend Titus tells us the only thing that actually works for changing people, and that is God's grace. That's the big theme of the letter, as we'll see over the next few weeks. It's the title of our sermon series, and it's also the first point this morning. Grace leads to godliness. Grace leads to godliness. God's grace, that is, his love, his kindness to us that we don't deserve, that is what changes people. And we can see that in the very first verse. Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he serves God. He's sent out by Jesus. Why? What's he been sent to do? To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul has been sent by Jesus with a message that is going to change our lives. Truth that will lead to godliness. His job is to encourage our faith in that truth, deepen and grow our knowledge of that truth, because that is what makes bad people better. And as the letter goes on, it becomes clearer and clearer what that truth is, and that is God's grace. There's various places we could look in the letter. Let's just flick ahead quickly to chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. So chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So do you see what grace does, what God's goodness and kindness we don't deserve, what it does? It saves us. And we're used to that idea, aren't we? We're saved by grace. Praise God for that. But we're told here it also trains us. It also teaches us to be godly. Grace leads to godliness. God's grace is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card, a free pass to get away with murder. No, God's graciousness changes us. So when the good news of grace really takes hold of you, really grabs hold of a person they will stop being quite so out of control. They will start the process of getting their lives in shape under God. Chaotic churches 
will be put in order. Sinful people will start being more like Jesus. More and more, bit by bit, slowly but surely, that is what God's grace does. It saves people and changes people. Verse 2, we're back in chapter 1 again. Verse 2 talks about this truth, this truth of the gospel, and how it brings the hope of eternal life. This is a hope that God promised before he made the world, and it's a hope that's coming true now, we're told. Verse 3, now, at his appointed season, he's brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. That is amazing. It's saying eternal life is promised by God before the foundation of the world, and it comes true now as the message is spoken, as the good news of grace is preached. The gospel, it's not just information. It brings transformation. The word of truth, of God's grace, as it's spoken, as it's proclaimed, as it's declared, life happens. Eternal life comes about. Grace is life-changing, life-giving. I wonder if that's how you see grace. Not only is God's grace and kindness to save us, but also his grace and kindness to change us. Perhaps you're new to church. You had no idea Christianity was about grace at all, about his love we don't deserve. You thought, oh no, we've just got to be good. That's what this is, isn't it? Just be good. Well, that's not good news. That's not the gospel. We could never be good enough. No, instead, we are saved for free, gratis, for nothing. It's entirely grace through faith in Jesus. But maybe you had heard about that. Okay, it's grace. It's not by what we do. And yet you've got the wrong end of the stick, as if that means just now you can just go do whatever you want. Well, no, it's neither of those things. Properly understood, properly received, grace leads to godliness. And that's where Titus comes in. Titus needs to establish that truth in those messed up little churches in Crete. And so Paul's writing this letter to Titus, telling him, reminding him how to do that. How are we going to get this message of grace front and centre and keep it that way? Well, chapter 1 has two groups of people in it and two things Titus needs to do. So have a look in verse 5. He needs to appoint some people. There's one group of people. They need to be appointed. They need to be given a job. And then verse 11, there's another group and they need to be silenced. Titus needs to get them to shut up. He needs to appoint one lot, silence another. And for the rest of our time, we're going to look at those two things. So firstly, Titus needs to appoint leaders who live and teach this. Appoint leaders who live and teach that truth that grace leads to godliness. Have a look at verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul and Titus had been to the Greek island of Crete. They weren't just there to top up their tan. They had been preaching the gospel there. And people had become Christians. It was amazing. People had come to faith. But before everything was really established, Paul had left. And he'd left Titus behind 
to tie up all the loose ends, to put in order what's left unfinished by appointing elders, leaders in these brand new churches. But what sort of person should take that on? Well, we've all got ideas, haven't we, about what makes a good leader. Maybe you've had a boss one time at work. You think, yeah, that, they, were, they were great. Occasionally you do find one of those. You know, they were, they were great. Or the best teacher you've ever had. Or, or maybe a political leader you admire. Maybe even a pastor. Somebody who you might look at and say, yeah, I want somebody like that to lead. And we've all got personal preferences as well. Things that we like, things we prefer. How do all of those things match up with the Bible's criteria? Now, you might be aware here in WEM, we're looking to appoint more elders in the not-too-distant future. There's two of us already, myself and John, we're wanting to appoint more. This passage is so helpful, isn't it? It's so helpful to us, telling us what we should look for. And it tells us we should look for leaders, plural. That's what churches need. See that verse 5? Appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, or every place. So we never read of a church in the Bible with a leader. There's always a team of elders leading together. But what kind of people should be on that team? Well, Paul gives us three tests, three things to look for in a man's life. Their home, their holiness, and their doctrine. I really tried to find an H. I really did. If you think of one, please let me know. Uh, Their home, their holiness, and their doctrine. And as we look at these three tests, Remember that most of this is not unique to elders. This is just describing the kind of godliness that grace leads to. So it isn't that there's how Christians should behave down here. It doesn't really matter about that. But then up here, there's how elders should behave. Totally different stuff. No, the standard's actually the same for us all. It's just saying, no, make sure you pick elders who actually are that. Not sinless but genuine examples of sinners who are being changed by grace. So as we read this, let's examine ourselves, not just potential elders and current elders. First test, the home. Verse 6 says that an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. Literally, a one-woman man. That doesn't mean elders have to be married, but if they are, they need to be faithful, sexually, emotionally, loving, committed to that one woman, forsaking all others till death do you part. That is so important. Verse 6 goes on to talk about kids. Told an elder must be someone, must be a man whose children believe. You could translate that as whose children believe are faithful. I think there's a footnote there. It says children are trustworthy. However good a parent you are, you cannot guarantee that your children will be saved. But you can bring them up well so that they respect and obey you, particularly while they are children, which is what this is talking about. And that's where the rest of verse 6 goes. It talks about them not being open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. We had a chat about this at breakfast, you might imagine. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, we did, but still. We have every child, every child at some stage 
is wild. Every child. And we need to allow for children to be children. And while sin is never okay, all kids will be naughty sometimes. This, again, just so that we don't look for elders who are perfect. This is not talking about elders' children who are perfect either. This is talking about children who just are out of control, who don't respect their parents, who aren't being brought up with discipline, aren't being shown the kind of grace that would help them to grow. The home is the church in miniature. If you like, every husband, every dad is, is a bit like the pastor of a little church called their family. And they're either good at it or bad at it. But they are. And being an elder in the church is like being a dad in God's family. Verse 7 talks about them managing God's household. The roles that are similar. And so it's right that we look at somebody's home life when assessing them for eldership. How's their marriage? How are their children? These are the kind of criteria we should be looking for. And since these elders are supposed to be examples for us, this should be a challenge to all of us. What are our homes like? If we're married, how are our marriages? If we have children, well, if somebody lived with us for a while, would they be able to guess that we were a Christian family? Now, we don't need to be married. We don't need to have children. But our home life is a good indicator of our spiritual life. That's what we're being told here. Second test is holiness. That's about general character. Verse 6, verse 7 say to be blameless. No pressure there. (laughs) Be blameless. And again, that doesn't mean perfect. That would disqualify everybody. Titus is supposed to give the job to somebody. No, but it means there shouldn't be anything major that just rules them out. Nothing glaringly out of sync between what they say and how they are. They don't need to be super popular, but they do need a good reputation. You don't want somebody, the kind of person who ends up in the local gossip or in the local paper. Somebody who makes people think, I knew those Christians were just hypocrites. I knew there was nothing in it. Now, of course, none of us should be like that. But how much worse, how much more damage is done when Christian leaders fall? Hypocritical leaders are one of the biggest reasons people give for why they reject Christianity. So we need leaders who not only teach grace, but for whom grace is leading to godliness. Verse 7 talks about their temperament, not being overbearing or bullying, not quick-tempered, irritable, not getting drunk or getting violent or getting angry. Eldership can be frustrating. Leadership of any sort always comes with some kind of conflict. This is saying don't pick elders who fly off the handle, whether that's in person or the kind of people who just reply, send, and then later go, oh, hang on a minute. (laughs) And they mustn't just be in it for what they can get out of it. It talks about not pursuing dishonest gain. That is a tragedy, isn't it, when people are preyed on in that way. Instead, leaders should be like verse 8, which gives us a very different picture, doesn't it, of loving people. It says hospitable. That isn't so much about being a good dinner party host. 
as it is about welcoming outsiders. Literally, the word means loving strangers. There's an evangelistic edge to this. Having a mind for the outsider, having a sense of being open to one another. And the rest of that list, again, is about a life in order, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Holiness is so important for all of us. And this is the sort of thing it would look like. And that's the sort of thing to be looking for in leaders. Home, holiness, third test, doctrine. I wish I could have found a word that started with H. Because really good preachers, they have alliterative headings, don't they? they re- well, that's, that's not what it says makes a good elder here, thankfully. Verse 9 says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. It's far more important to be faithful than to be clever. You could be creative in how you teach, but we mustn't be creative in what we teach. Elders ought to be people who are absolutely committed to the unchanging truth of God. And that's not about saying, find theology nerds. Find people who are just really into that. No, this is intensely practical. Really practical. Why is it that elders need a strong grip on the truth? Well, verse 9 goes on. It's so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Elders are teachers. They're more than that, but they're never less than that. Doesn't necessarily mean they are preachers, but they are teaching in some way, shape, or form. Positively, they are teaching people good stuff. Sound doctrine. Sound there means healthy. It's true, it's biblical, it's life giving, full of grace, grows people. And there's a negative side as well. Elders need to be able to correct unhealthy doctrine and those who spread it. And that's the unpopular bit. People don't want to hear us talk about. Well, against things. And that isn't what we ought to always be doing. But this chapter reminds us, doesn't it? Eternal life's at stake. The hope of eternal life is at stake on what is taught or not taught. So elders must refute people who are leading other people astray. Stand against certain things because we are for other things. Because we love people. We love the Lord's. So we need to look at a possible elders' doctrine. Do they know the truth and can they clearly encourage other people with it? Are they willing to defend the truth if needs be? Grace leads to godliness. So we need to appoint leaders who live this, who teach this in their home, with their holiness, in their doctrine. It is not enough to be gifted It is not enough to be a great preacher on a Sunday and all over the place on a Saturday night. It is not enough to be a dynamic leader who gets things done, but who does it by domineering. We need people of character, teaching the truth of grace, showing that that is what they believe by living godly lives themselves. Now, this is a humbling list. It's a very hard thing to preach. It really is. But it is just describing ordinary Christian life, ordinary Christian living for all of us. 
what Crete needed, what Wem needs. People like that, leaders like that. Which brings us to verse 10, where we get the word for or because. The reason we need leaders like that is because there are a lot of people out there not like that. In fact, it isn't going to be enough to appoint leaders who teach and live that truth. Titus also needs to silence those who deny it. Silence those who deny it. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced. Now, that's a really strong word. It's to do with like putting a muzzle on a vicious dog to forcibly keep its mouth shut so it stops doing damage. False teachers do more damage than a Rottweiler. And they make about as much sense as well. Bark, 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 bark. They spout meaningless talk, we're told. Not the healthy stuff that good elders should teach. It's just fluff. Have you ever uh, had those biscuits, if they could be called biscuits, pink and whites? Are you aware of these abominations? Bland marshmallow. I like a biscuit. Bland marshmallow sandwiched between really manky stale wafers. It tastes a bit sweet, but it's 90% air. That is what false teaching is like. It is empty. You might go, oh, that's all right, but it's done nothing for you. It's just empty. Whereas the gospel changes everything. Grace is supposed to change our lives, whereas these lies come to nothing, nothing good anyway. See the impact in verse 11. They're disrupting whole households. And that doesn't just mean families, it means churches. They're turning them upside down, smashing them to bits by teaching things they ought not to teach. This is so serious, so serious. What are they teaching? Well, verse 12 quotes from one of Crete's own prophets or one of their own prophets, perhaps. It's a quote from the philosopher Epimenides. I'm sure you recognize that when I was reading your Greek philosophy. But it's a quote from Epimenides about the average citizen of Crete. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, Crete is a beautiful place. It's a great holiday destination. But it was famous for its bad behavior. I've got a, a Greek friend who says it hasn't changed very much. But they, uh, they, they used to say, you read the history and it tells us being a pirate was considered an honorable job. In fact, there was a word for cheating based on the name Crete. Sort of like a Cretans are cheating, that sort of thing. Or Cretans are cretins, that kind of thing. But this isn't just a quote about them, although it seems to be accurate, Paul says. It seems to be a quote by them. That's the way it's, it, it's put here. So as if you went to the website of Crete Baptist Church, play a little snippet of one of their sermons, and this is what it would sound like. Everyone in Crete is bad. So you sort of think, well, why does he need to silence them if that's true? <laughs> because they're not saying it like it's a bad thing. It's more like everyone in Crete is an evil, lazy so-and-so, but that's just what we're like around here. We can't help it. Boys will be boys. Cretans will be Cretans. That's just how it is. That's just how it is. 
You ever heard stuff like that? Excusing sin. Maybe you've heard it coming out of your own mouth. I know I have. Sin just comes naturally. So that's just the way I am. I've always struggled with this. I'm not going to change now. That's just what I'm like when I'm stressed. Everybody's like that. You can't do anything about that. I was born this way. You can't ask me to change. Surely God wants me to be myself, whatever comes naturally. Well, God loves us just as we are. But he loves us too much to leave us as we are. Grace leads to godliness. God changes people. Whereas these false teachers say, no, a leopard can't change its spots. Now, you might think, how could they get away with saying that in church? As if they say, oh, sin, don't worry about it. But it seems to come in under the cover of religion. Verse 10 talks about how it's the circumcision group, largely the ones who are doing it. So they're probably saying something like, yeah, people around here are famous for being bad. There's nothing we can do about that. But if they just get circumcised, if they just do some religious stuff, well, that'll be fine. As long as they do a bit of religion over here, it doesn't really matter how they behave over here. You recognize that sort of thinking? I go to church. So we can ignore the fact that I'm generally unkind and impatient with everybody. I read my Bible this morning. So what I do after work is covered, surely. The start of verse 15 might have been their motto. To the pure, all things are pure. You have jumped through a few religious hoops. You are now pure. So now whatever you do is sorted. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But Paul turns that around on them and says, yes, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. Without grace... We're all actually impure. So even the good stuff we do is tainted. And these people don't even realize it. It says their consciences are corrupted. They're broken because they've stopped using it. They're teaching sin-excusing religion rather than life-transforming grace. And the scariest bit is that they're claiming to be Christians. Verse 16, they claim to know God. That's what they say. But the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It says, but by their actions, they deny him. Their lives prove they don't know God at all. They say one thing and they do something totally different. If you applied those three tests to them, it would fail spectacularly. You're told they're unfit for doing anything good. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Good for nothings. Grace leads to godliness. You can't separate those two things. You can't separate out doctrine from application. If it's not being seen in your life, it's not in you. If you're teaching and believing rubbish, you won't be getting more godly. And that's why silence, uh, Titus needs to silence them. He needs to shut them up. He needs to de-platform them, if you like. Elders need to protect the church by silencing certain people. Sometimes that needs to be done publicly, calling something out, telling people, don't listen to that kind of thing, don't listen to that. But often you'll never see this because it's done privately, done discreetly. There's just going to be songs we don't sing, books and conferences we don't plug. Not everything claiming to be Christian is good for you. We live in an age when everybody has a voice, don't they? You can go on Twitter, say whatever you like to everybody on the planet. And in some ways, that's a really good thing. There are lots of voices that have been wrongly ignored. 
But it's still true that not every opinion should be given equal volume. In the church, only the gospel should get the microphone. So elders need to be wise about who gets to preach, who gets to teach, who gets to lead kids groups, who gets to do that sort of thing. They might need to have a quiet word with somebody about the impact of what they're saying. But even that silencing is done out of love. Have a look at verse 13. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. The aim is not to get rid of people. The aim is to help them be healthy, be sound. We want to get grace to work in everybody's life so that we all grow and change. It's not just shut those people up so that they shut up. It's have a word with them so that they change what they say. That's what grace does. It actually brings us the hope that people, in God's kindness, can change. Let's apply this to us. Titus needs to appoint leaders who live and teach the truth about grace and silence those who deny it. How do we feel about that? About God's strategy for building the church, giving it good leaders. Leaders who have authority to manage the church household, to refute, even silence, people who disrupt it. In our sin, none of us likes to be led. We all chafe against that, even if it's godly authority. We want to reject that. But the Lord knows what we need, and we're told churches need elders. I want to thank you as a church so much for welcoming me in in this past year as one of those elders. Thank you for following our lead, for wanting to be taught. As an elder, can I say how challenging this is? But please don't lower the bar. As elders, we're here to serve you, to further your faith, your knowledge of the truth, to be examples of what that looks like. Please pray for us. Please pray that together as a church, we would lead and be led in godliness. And as we look to appoint more elders, is this the kind of thing we want from them? Not somebody flashy, not someone who necessarily agrees with us on everything or is going to push things in the direction we want to go. Not someone from a particular group or with a particular history or somebody who's deliberately not from a particular group or has a lack of particular history. But someone whose home life, whose holiness, whose doctrine shows grace in action. Let's appoint people like that. Let's follow people like that. Let's aspire to be people like that. Maybe even serving as an elder. And let's not pay attention to those who aren't like that, whether that's preachers online or the books we read or the churches we visit, the advice we listen to. Ignore that kind of sin-excusing stuff that destroys churches. We need to ask ourselves, am I living the lie that I just am the way I am and there's no way I can change. I can know God and just carry on. No, we all sin. We all need God's grace. And what we're going to celebrate in a minute in the Lord's Supper is that we can have that grace in Christ. We absolutely can. That is a wonderful truth. But we must remember that Jesus gave his life to change ours. Grace leads 
to godliness.